Man of Steel. Answers. Insight. Commentary. Episode 51. First Contact. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. First Contact, First Impressions, Second Chances, The War of the Worlds, and The Wizard of Oz. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Wonder Woman is right around the corner and in her own live-action feature film for the very first time. How lucky we are to be alive right now. So I've been thinking a lot about firsts as a way of framing this episode, where I've secretly been trying to continue my Man of Steel scene-by-scene commentary sort of in the background. We did The Homecoming and The Beautiful Truth. We talked about Clark's fondness for football. And this episode, we're going to touch on the first appearance of General Swanwick getting briefed by Dr. Hamilton and Zod's ultimatum. Scenes like these often earn Man of Steel the label of a first contact sci-fi film, which was absolutely the intention of the filmmakers. It always bothered me in the comic books when Lois Lane is interviewing Superman. She says, so you're from Krypton, huh? And he says, yeah. And she says, I'm paraphrasing, cool. And that's it. Wait a minute. He's an alien and he just said he's from another planet. So there's like intelligent life out there in the universe. And everybody just kind of accepts the fact, oh yeah, this guy's an alien. If the world found out that he were an alien on Earth and that there had been at least at one time a planet with intelligent life, that would in itself be the biggest story that ever hit mankind. And so that was our starting point is, okay, it's a first contact story. It's E.T., it's Close Encounters. And going back to Superman, Superman was originally a science fiction story, going back to his science fiction roots. It's a fitting classification which opens up Man of Steel to almost endless analysis. So all I can say is that I had to pick and choose a few select morsels because first contact is an absolutely massive umbrella of ideas. I have notes on, but we won't really be discussing, the Drake equation, the Fermi paradox, the Rios scale, Shannon Numbers, the Kardashev scale, SETI, Jill Tarter, Carl Sagan, and Contact, Linguistics and Arrival, Post Detection Protocols, Nick Lane's Origins of Complex Life, and so much more. And that isn't even getting into the philosophical, political, metaphorical, and existential questions about those ideas. All I can do is provide the smallest slice of something relating these films to First Contact. And that, in and of itself, is a great illustration of what First Contact is. As a framing device, and metaphorically, we're talking about the collisions of worlds, cultures, and entire spheres of knowledge and experience and context, making initial impressions at a single, tiny point which can't possibly encapsulate the totality of everything behind it. It makes for a great framing device because it necessarily implicates so much more, but the story gets told through a more focused and intimate lens. Elliot and E.T., Louise and 
two heptapods, Lois and Clark. So first contact is definitely worth more and deeper analysis. We can only cover so much, but to give you a roadmap, first, we're going to run through those two Man of Steel scenes for their first contact flavor. Then we're going to look at the parallels to the World of the Worlds as a Man of Steel precursor. Next, we'll see how the wonderful Wizard of Oz picked up meaning ages after it was authored. And finally, figuring out that first impressions often require redeeming second chances. We'll take a few detours along the way, but that's the gist of where we're going. So one of the reasons that First Contact is such a massive umbrella is because metaphorically, it's built into the hero's journey, the broad template of nearly all mythology. An early part of the journey is when the hero crosses the threshold from the known to the unknown, thus making First Contact with the unknown implicitly baked into every story that follows Joseph Campbell's monomyth observation. So to narrow our scope somewhat, we're going to stick to science fiction and humanity's first contact with extraterrestrials. And we're also going to say that first contact stories are characterized by a realistic emphasis on certain things, like the human perspective, the extraterrestrial nature of the alien, the impact on the world at large and authorities specifically, and finally, an emphasis on that encounter. These are fast and loose guidelines, as almost any attempt at definition would be, but it serves to sort of exclude, say, Superman 78, Mork and Mindy, or ALF as first contact stories. While they might all literally be the first contact between humanity and an alien, they're generally not realistic, the alien is heavily humanized, the larger implications are glossed over, and the emphasis is going to be on the ongoing aftermath rather than the initial encounter. Conversely, using this definition, we see that Man of Steel constitutes a first contact story, even if it's not literally humanity's first contact with extraterrestrials in this universe. There are a number of earlier contacts prior to the events of Man of Steel. From Man of Steel alone, we had the scout ship, which arrived 20,000 years in advance of Kal-El or Zod. From Jor-El's perspective, he could already tell that there was a seemingly intelligent population on Earth before he sent Cal. But it's not his perspective that matters in a first contact narrative. In Batman v Superman, Wonder Woman makes reference to other worlds, suggesting prior contact with offworlders. In Suicide Squad, Waller explicitly says Enchantress is from another dimension, another world, and Enchantress suggests the same speaking with her brother. And it's even more explicit in the novelization. Finally, for Justice League, by now we all know that the mother boxes represent prior contact. Indeed, all of these are consistent with speculation of how we may first come to discover intelligent life, not with a live signal or visitation, but in the form of artifacts, helping to address the issue of time differential. Here's Professor Paul Davies on Big Picture Science, a SETI Institute radio show. And it's also possible that intelligent life has spread across the galaxy, not in the colonizing sense, but the exploration sense. We can't be sure that in the four and a half billion years that our planet has existed, that the solar system hasn't been visited by alien technology of some sort at some stage in the past. It would be very, very hard to determine that. If, for example, a hundred million years ago, some sort of alien uh, gizmo had come to the solar system, maybe landing on one of the planets or on our moon a uh, hundred million years ago, even if it uh, just stayed there, how would we know what sort of traces might be left behind after a hundred million years? The idea of alien artifacts is explored by the monolith in Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which gets a nod in BVS when Lex encounters the Kryptonian scout ship for the first time. We're going to reserve our analysis of the cosmic 
cosmology of these DC films until after Justice League. But even in Man of Steel, it's apparent there are more worlds than just Krypton and Earth. Jor-El isn't astonished by finding intelligent life on Earth. We aren't the answer to that question to him. And this is confirmed by BVS, which not only has the Kryptonian archive containing knowledge from 100,000 different worlds, but the Parademons, Steppenwolf, Cyborg's Motherbox, and more. Man of Steel also features universal translation technology. More on that some other time. The point is, a first contact story isn't really first contact from the perspective of the aliens, but from humanity's awareness of the aliens. Now, something that's sometimes raised is, why wasn't the landing of Cal's vessel first contact for humanity? Well, way back in episode 15, we talked about some of the reasons that Clark's vessel wouldn't be detected coming to Earth. In 1980, there were fewer technologies and agencies monitoring the skies. The government wouldn't fund the SETI Institute until four years later, and their focus has primarily been on detecting radio signals, not essentially cloaked ships. The main motive for monitoring and detection would not be near-Earth objects. NASA would not seriously begin that effort until the 90s, but instead terrestrial missile launches. The method would basically be radar, which remains our primary sky sensor even today. And even today, we do not have technological sky omniscience. Over the North Atlantic, there is no radar. You see, radar only extends about 250 miles offshore. Transatlantic planes can be more than a thousand miles from shore. Radar is fallible can be defeated, and that should be intuitive based on the development and pursuit of stealth bombers and the like. If undefeatable sky omniscience was already a thing, it'd be pointless to pursue this technology. There are two main ways to detect objects in the air and sea, radar and infrared, and stealth vehicles are designed to avoid both of those systems. The most important thing stealth vehicles have to do to stay hidden is literally slip under the radar. So radar is helpful for keeping track of things like planes in the sky and boats in the ocean. But sometimes, Militaries want to be able to spy or sneak up on their enemies, which is why we have stealth planes and boats that can slip by radar detectors, either because they're specially shaped or because they use radar-absorbent material. Note that the first infrared satellite was launched in 1983, but that signature would have been small regardless. Remember that Lara and Zod were in the room right underneath the vessel's launch. If it gave off thermals like a human vehicle, they would have been in trouble. So the ship just needs to beat radar. And we've been developing detection-defeating devices since the 60s, well before Cal's vessel arrived in 1980. And it's hardly a stretch to suggest a ship capable of looting Zod sensors might defeat human radar tech in 1980. Jor-El would have been motivated to cloak his ship, being developed in secret during an energy crisis. And even if the ship, which was undetectable to Zod without first interrogating Cal, was somehow visible to radar, it would be easily ignored as an impossible glitch. The fastest terrestrial in-atmosphere objects are basically rocket launches, and they take several minutes from launch to landing to cross continents. The fastest man-made object in space, NASA's Juno spacecraft, has taken five years to get from Earth to Jupiter. By comparison, Cal's vessel starts off at Saturn and crosses the the 1.3 
billion kilometers to be in Kansas seemingly in seconds. That's many orders of magnitude faster than anything human radar is looking for and so quick as to be unlikely to register on radar at all. The ship would be under radar coverage in an instant and barely register as a blip. That's a little glib because it takes light traveling from our sun 80 minutes to reach Saturn. So I'm skeptical that Cal's vessel travels that quickly, but there's still some constraints on Cal's travel time, making it impossibly fast to humanity in 1980. Okay, but what about ocular detection? Well, what of it? Are stealth planes actually invisible to the naked eye? No, but they avoid detection by flying at night, using cloud cover, and flying at high altitude. We see all of these in the film. Cal's vessel comes in at a high attack angle. It arrives at night, and it's only below the clouds for an instant before it lands. This was Kansas in 1980, with a population density ranking towards the bottom fifth of the 50 states, with fewer persons per square kilometer in rural areas. So basically, there was a window of seconds for somebody to be already staring at a cloud-covered sky at night around 10 p.m. to spot the ship. I know there was no internet in 1980, but I can assure you that people had better things to do even back then. <laughs> it's completely plausible that the ship could land undetected. And even if somebody managed to spot it, so what? Hundreds to thousands of UFO sightings are reported every year and largely dismissed. Why? Here again is the SETI Institute's radio show in a little sketch poking fun at the quality of UFO sightings. Hey, how'd you do? Oh man, did I luck out. Not only did I get a photo of the saucer landing in the Starbucks parking lot, see? Oh, that's good. Nice angle and high res. I picked up another piece of an alien craft, including here, the entire control board of the ship. And did you run them by our independent yet globally recognized team of physicists and chemists to verify that the material is indeed not from Earth? Yes. They said it could only have come from a spaceship that was designed by a supreme intelligence. Well then, I'll note that here in the highly detailed annotated report I've been making on all the material you've collected, along with more than 20,000 eyewitness reports I've collected, each independently confirmed by three additional sources, and also medical verification of physical contact with extraterrestrials conducted by World Health Organization physicians and a team from Doctors Without Borders. I can't help it overhearing. Why don't you go public with this stuff? I mean, this is the most persuasive evidence I've seen that aliens have visited Earth. So, ready to share it? Well, the I'd public like already knows. I mean, I need maybe to check my spelling, uh, color, some of these documents, and maybe switch to the font to Ariel. Besides, the they can't handle the truth, the public. I don't get it. <laughs> Now, on the flip side of that is asking then, well, why would Jonathan be so worried about the government showing up? And that's easy to explain. He's operating under the same myth of government airspace omniscience that we just took time out to debunk. We saw this in him advising people to go under the overpass, and here it is again operating under another common misconception. It's especially sympathetic with Jonathan because he would have grown up with duck and cover, and the sense that the government would be aware of everything in its airspace at any time. An idea that was pushed by Cold War propaganda to foster the air of invincibility and all-knowing against the Soviets. So it's completely rational for Jonathan to fear that the government would come, but at the same time plausible that the government didn't. More on government awareness in a bit. I do want to quickly go on a tangent of a tangent for something so easily taken for granted, and that's the intentional choice to cut away from the vessel's final landing. I think that was the smart choice for a lot of reasons. Story focus and screen time economy, visual effects savings, but also two more reasons, iconography and logistics. In terms of iconography, 
choreography. Cutting away allows the audience to fill in the blanks, and doubtless for many people that will come from their own nostalgic recollections of past renditions. A crash landing in a remote field, Ma and Pa Kent in a pickup on a lonely dirt road etc. And I think that's lovely shorthand. But for me, it's always been one of my pet peeves about the Superman mythos. The idea that Jor-El had all the technical capability and wherewithal to engineer a ship capable of crossing the stars to land on a tiny blue marble light years away. And incidentally, if the Earth were the size of a marble, the diameter of Pluto's orbit would be seven miles across. And that's just within the solar system, say nothing of crossing stars. Yet, despite all that technical capability, his design can only come to a stop by crash landing. I can accept that to ford such a hazardous journey to begin with, the ship must be robust enough to survive it. So it isn't about the protection of the vessel or its contents necessarily, but what about those collateral to the collision? What about who or what you're hitting? So ingrained is the trope of baby Superman's ship colliding with the Earth haphazardly, it's practically the point of two different Superman stories. In Red Sun, Superman's landing is so indiscriminate he ends up in Mother Russia. In Flashpoint, Point, Superman's landing is a disaster for Metropolis. And if we're playing purely percentages, aiming at the Earth, little baby Kal-El is more likely to find himself at the bottom of an ocean than anywhere on habitable dry land. But the act of even being able to hit the Earth to begin with makes it seem much more likely that the ship selects a suitable landing zone and can land without crashing. But that's enough of that tangent. We're not shown the landing, so the film makes room for both fans who want to indulge in classic iconography, and for those who question the logistics of crashing after crossing the cosmos. Let's get back to the film and General Swanwick at Continental NORAD. Here's that half minute. General Swanwick, sir. What am I looking at, Doc? Comet? Asteroid? Comets don't make course corrections, General. I wanted you to see this before some amateur with a telescope creates a worldwide panic. The ship appears to have inserted itself into a lunar synchronous orbit, though I have no idea why. Have you tried communicating with it? Well, they haven't responded as of yet. I'm just speculating, but I think whoever's at the helm of that thing is looking to make a dramatic entrance. Oh man, there is so much we could say. Let's try to confine ourselves to just three observations. First observation is the change in detection technology. One of the reasons that I went into that derail on detection in 1980 is to contrast how far we've come in 40 years. Basically, outside of a stealth ship, 1980 is the last time that you can tell a story of Superman coming to Earth undetected. Any adaptation after the 80s has to account for much more robust early warning detection systems. And here, the film realistically reflects that. Instead of imputing present technology and abilities onto the past as so many stories accidentally do, they accurately depict the shift and change in capabilities that historically happened. The second observation is about post-detection protocols, which, as someone who studies rules and principles, is an endlessly interesting topic in its own right. But what I want to focus on is verification, publication, and response. In the real world, post-detection protocols basically fall into public idealistic scientific goals and government practical goals. For example, SETI puts a high emphasis on verification in order to maintain their integrity and reputation, and immediately publish to other scientists in order to obtain that verification. And then their response is basically to turn that over to the world, basically an optimistic belief in consensus. By contrast, the military
military as proxy for the government puts an emphasis on containing the information once there's verification. Basically, a pessimistic view of the impact on the public. Here, the verification comes by the Black Zero's appearance and movement, but they want this addressed by the military before the public learns of it independently. The military has established this reputation as we have already heard from Lois's exchange with Perry. The Pentagon is denying that there was a ship. Of course they are. They're supposed to. It's the Pentagon. The idea of the state suppressing information is likely to show up in every Justice League Universe film. In Man of Steel, it happens with the scout ship at Ellesmere. In BVS, you have all the black ops surrounding Nairomi and Swanwick's refusal to go on record. And Suicide Squad is a quagmire of secrets and hidden agendas. I'm really curious how the public perceives the siege of Midway City. It's probable that Wonder Woman's involvement in the Great War is also classified, and so on. The pragmatic reason for secrecy is clear. Dr. Hamilton is afraid of a worldwide panic. So is Perry. It's a long-standing reason. We have the documented fears expressed by Winston Churchill along those lines. Our government does not take UFO sightings too seriously, so we're told. But in a report released by the British government Thursday, they don't apparently mess around with sightings of the unexplained. The BBC's Tasman Smith has that story. If the truth about UFOs is really out there, the closest we can get to it is here. The results of government investigations into hundreds of sightings made public for the first time. We now know that in 1957, the MOD took UFO sightings so seriously they were discussed at a Joint Intelligence Committee meeting. The documents even show that none other than Sir Winston Churchill was involved in a potential alien cover-up. Informed of a mysterious sighting in the east of England during World War II, the former Prime Minister hushed things up for fear of causing widespread panic. Former head of the MOD's UFO department, Nick Pope, explains more. There's been some suggestion that Churchill tried to cover some of this up. A little more on Churchill later, despite the cynicism about public panic as a reaction, note that the go-to is first an attempt at communication. Okay, third and final observation is the evolution of military response across these films. In Man of Steel, they start with attempting communication first, then negotiation. When Zod breaks the agreement and returns to Earth without answer, they respond with force. And in the final act, they respond in full force. In BVS, the escalation to force is far faster. They attack Doomsday almost immediately, and the president is on call to use the nuclear option as soon as the opportunity presents itself. When it fails, they reassess their protocols and pray, and thankfully, the Trinity come through for them. In Suicide Squad, you can see that the protocols have been further evolved. They've been having discussions about what to do when threats emerge. They have terms like NEG, non-human entity, and the ability to enact mass evacuations or field experimental task forces. The military went all out. In the novelization, they even attempted using nukes. And the military probably got the credit for defeating the NHG publicly. But behind closed doors, the military knows that conventional forces failed. So does that carve out jurisdiction for the Justice League? In BVS, public anxiety about Superman is undermined by Doomsday being an actual clear and present danger. And Suicide Squad continues the theme with the attack on Midway. By the time the Justice League forms, it makes sense for the public to be more focused on actual threats rather than the existential ones posed by their heroes possibly failing. Based on what we know about Justice League, it seems that some of it will be done in the shadows and underground so there's less call for military response. So going back to our first contact metrics, this little scene is realistic. 
It's from the perspective of the humans while making the aliens silent unknowns. It shows the impact on authority and it is focused on the encounter. It sets up the fear of a public panic and the drama of Zod's ultimatum. If I had time, I'd do an episode about ultimatums because they're a fascinating insight into psychology and negotiation and they show up again and again in these kinds of films. Print it or I walk. Surrender or watch this world suffer the consequences. The bat is dead. Bury it. Bring me the head of the bat. You disobey me, you die. Maybe someday we'll come back to that. For now, I mainly want to look at it under a first contact lens and maybe answer a few common diegetic questions about the ultimatum. Actually, let's start with those questions just to get them out of the way. I can't hope to answer every conceivable question about the ultimatum. I don't intend to. Like I said, it could be an episode all its own, but let's just give some brief answers to some commonly asked questions. We'll fast attack it. You can unpack the answers on your own. So question, why give an ultimatum at all? Why not just immediately descend upon the earth? without a word. And the answer is the Codex. Zod is obsessed with a very particular vision of Krypton, one that requires the Codex. It's the only thing that's unique to this planet Earth. And doubtless, Zod has already scanned for it and couldn't find it. He's combed through all our communications and found no hint or mention. So the only thing that might lead him to the Codex is Kal-El. Zod demands Kal-El as a path to the Codex. If he asks for the Codex directly, he's revealing what he's really after and giving humanity leverage on him. If Zod descends without a word, he risks losing the Codex forever, either by destroying it in the attack, losing it in the rubble, or even pushing Cal or Earth to destroy it in reprisal. Question, why does Zod give them 24 hours? answer to allow his demands to be fulfilled. And this goes into the psychology and strategy of ultimatum some, but they're only effective if you can actually get what you want. If you make the conditions impossible to fulfill, you're provoking the other party to defy the ultimatum. Question, why does the message look the way it does? Answer, creatively, it's dramatic, and diegetically, I'm just going to chalk it up to technical limitation. Zod chooses this kind of broadcast rather than, say, submitting something to a select outlet in order to put all of humanity on the same level and take away any question of verification or doubt. If he puts the publication in the hands of some select humans, he risks them wasting time on skepticism, censorship, or silent plans or retaliation. But by making it a worldwide broadcast, every institution is accountable to all of humanity. Question, how does Zod know every language? Answer, technology. I think it's implicit in the simultaneous broadcast that the translation is accomplished by technology. Even if Zod could or did learn every human language, and we've discussed in the past ways that he might, it's doubtful that he took the time to craft individualized messages for all the languages of Earth, even if Michael Shannon had to. <laughs> I also had a lot of fun doing this because I got to learn some new languages. Apparently, General Zod knows all the languages of Earth. I guarantee you it's the first and last time I will ever speak Nepalese. I'm pretty confident of that. Earth has too many languages to take that kind of time or care. The entirety of this broadcast was seen in over 180 countries and heard in over 2,000 languages. So, much more likely, Zod says his message once, his way, and Kryptonian tech takes over to translate it into the many tongues of man. Question, how was it night all around the world at the same time? Answer, 
Okay, so assuming that the broadcast is simultaneous, then it shouldn't be night on every corner of the Earth at the same time. And this is most likely a minor continuity flub to forgive, but it can be explained with some gymnastics not necessarily worth going through. We don't have to assume that every cut was to a simultaneous airing. We don't have to assume that every scene was actually occurring where its language predominates and so on. However, looking at the creative intentions, it is again to put that creepy horror sensibility into the film and to give that common shared experience for all of humanity fitting of the first contact narrative. Okay, so many more questions, but we have so much more to cover. The message itself starts out with, you are not alone. So let's look at that and the War of the Worlds. One of the most crystalline expressions of the first contact narrative is the question and phrasing of, are we alone in the universe? As stated by Jonathan Kent and as answered by Zod's, you are not alone. The question takes a human perspective, somewhat unconcerned if intelligent life is out there but has encountered each other, but instead contact contemplating our own isolation from them. Zod shows uncanny insight by targeting that central question and anxiety as his introduction to his ultimatum. It's almost too good to fit his modus operandi, but perhaps not beyond the efforts of his translating AI. If you were to throw all of mankind's questions about the cosmos into an alien AI blender, it's not at all unreasonable that are we alone in the universe may be the foremost to be answered. Throughout human history, we've wondered what lies beyond beyond the stars. We've dreamed of making contact with other worlds, believing that there is life beyond our galaxy. All of this to answer one of the greatest questions posed by man. Are we alone? It's a question on which reasonable minds differ. In the show notes, you'll find the time that the BBC brought together Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, and Arthur C. Clarke to debate issues like the likelihood of other intelligent life. And once again, Professor Davies, a former chair at SETI. Scientifically, of course, I have to concede that at this time, we have no evidence for any life beyond Earth, let alone intelligent life. We simply don't know. The biggest stumbling point is the transition from non-life to life. There's no lack of real estate out there where life as we know it may emerge at some stage. Plenty of Earth-like planets, that's not a problem. But what we don't know is how non-life turned into life. And if you don't know how something happened, it's impossible to estimate the odds. It could be that given an Earth-like planet, the emergence of life is something that's almost inevitable. On the other hand, it could be uh, that you need a, a sequence of freak chemical accidents that would happen only once in the observable universe. We can trace the origins of complex life on this planet to a common ancestor, meaning we know that, essentially, complex life has only successfully arisen once on this 4.5 billion year old planet in a 14 billion year old universe, and with a sample size of one and unknown terms to the calculation, it is impossible to be scientifically certain either way. And yet the question still haunts some of us. As Arthur C. Clarke said, quote, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying, end quote. It's an interesting existential dread that I don't really share, but it shows the philosophical slant, demand, and implicit desire in the question. Are we alone in the universe? In more practical terms, some think the terror is less existential and more immediate and calls into question whether we should be responding, if at all. My name is Doug Vakoch, and I'm president of Medi International. I worked for the SETI Institute for 16 years, and I was the director of interstellar message composition there. What would we say to represent ourselves to another world is something that can't 
be decided just by a handful of astronomers. Stephen Hawking has said, whatever you do, if you get a signal from the aliens, do not transmit. What could be a more vivid image of first contact than Stephen Hawking saying when Columbus came to the New World, they decimated the indigenous peoples, and that might be what it will be like for an alien civilization to come to Earth. The fact that this is a real world difference in opinion makes it completely plausible that Superman could err on the side of consideration before explanation, cautious contemplation over running his mouth. But that's another show. Irrespective of approach, the question still persists. Are we alone in the universe? This phrase has implicated extraterrestrials for ages. In fact, in 1939, Winston Churchill penned an 11-page essay entitled exactly that, Are We Alone in the Universe? Pondering the possibility of intelligent life elsewhere in the universe and concluding that it was likely. Winston Churchill drafted an essay in which he asked, perhaps himself as much as anyone who would read it, Are We Alone in the Universe? In the fall of 1939, Winston Churchill turned his thoughts to the possibility of other worlds. What you see in this essay is his embrace of ideas and his worldly, maybe we should say otherworldly, vision. Mario Livio, the Israeli astrophysicist, writes in Nature, At a time when a number of today's politicians shun science, I find it moving to recall a leader who engaged with it so profoundly. I like to think that there was something in the air, because we're going to be circling these years this episode. Action Comics number 1 came out in April 1938. War of the Worlds was broadcast later that year, and The Wizard of Oz premiered in 1939. From the floating iceberg fortress idea that we talked about in an earlier episode, you might have gathered that Churchill was a fan of science fiction. And in fact, he wrote H.G. Wells' fan mail in 1901, one year after the publication of War of the Worlds, and they maintained a relationship ever since. Churchill had read and enjoyed The War of the Worlds by his friend H.G. Wells, in which Wells describes Martians as minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic. To Imperial Britain, Martians could be made to embody human fear of the other. War of the Worlds is off-credited as one of the first pieces of fiction with the first contact theme, preceding the term itself, which would be coined in 1945. As the grand daddy of all first contact stories. It's only natural that its progeny would share references and themes and similarities, often becoming increasingly subtle and referential as first contact entered our collective consciousness and popular lexicon. But as the first, War of the Worlds was much more explicit in its terms and allusions. In the first chapter, it already directly compares alien invasion to European colonialism upon the indigenous. And repeatedly throughout the novel, humans are directly compared to animals, with very little abstraction. Again and again, the narrator effectively says the Martians have reduced humanity to powerless animals. So just as all platform games can trace back to Super Mario or all fighting games can find something in Street Fighter, as the common ancestor to Man of Steel and all first contact invasion stories, War of the Worlds was of course influential. Before we get into the deeper themes, perhaps some superficial similarities to the original novel. The most obvious to me is the upright verticality of the Black Zero and the Kryptonian world engine, with their three-legged designs. These are evocative of the tripods in the War of the Worlds, who also feature
featured energy beams, tentacles, and a black gas weapon. The world engine fires a giant beam weapon. It forms its liquid geo into tentacles and transforms the atmosphere into a noxious dark gas, which makes Superman vulnerable. Aside from Zod's ultimatum and Feora's parlay, the invasion is basically without communication or mercy to Earth. Similarly, we're never privy to the Martian point of view in the War of the Worlds. However, colonialism is raised repeatedly, and in Man of Steel, the world engine is explicitly for colonization. Realism wasn't the point of either work, but an immersive tool used to engage a contemporary audience into the story, making both filled with allusions, deeply referential, with a dozen biblical references, many contemporary literary and journalistic references, historical citation, cutting-edge scientific speculation, all set in the real world with real locations, real agencies, and so on. Both are more concerned with the realistic impact, consequences, and psychology of science fiction than the science of the fiction itself. As Jules Verne observed of Wells, Verne would be more inclined to ask, how does the heat ray work? Whereas the important question to Wells was, how does the heat ray affect people? What does it do to them? Man of Steel follows the philosophy of Wells, while this show shows that it happens to hold up pretty well to the Verne approach most times too. But the emphasis is always on the impact and not the minutia of the mechanism. I'm more inclined towards Verne's technical writing than the societal metaphors of Wells, but I still enjoy them both. Back to similarities. Both feature impending Armageddon. Both feature protagonists who aren't portrayed in glossy perfection, but instead face moral dilemmas with controversial choices. In both, the emotional journey is more abstract, which the audience takes in by analogy and thoughtful empathy, rather than with immediate pre-digested clarity. The style for both is asking the open question, how would you feel, rather than the more typical manipulation to compel a certain feeling. By virtue of its length, War of the Worlds covers many more concepts than the radio drama, such as testing faith and religion, dependence on government intervention, law order in chaos and the other. However, two particular themes of interest is the fear of the mechanical and man as animal. H.G. Wells was influenced by the anxiety about the mechanized future brought on by the Industrial Revolution and the Gilded Age. Locomotives, factories, ocean steamliners, and mechanized warfare prognosticated the horrors of World War I, which will be touched upon in Wonder Woman this summer. The unstoppable juggernaut of inevitable mechanization was embodied in the Martian fighting machines, or tripods, in the War of the Worlds. And what ultimately brings down the invincible mechanized Martians is not human intellect or society, but nature in its humblest form, the microscopic germ. As raised by Grant Morrison in our Batman and Superman episode, Superman was also a response to the mechanical and industrialization, leaving a portion of the population behind to embrace populist notions of the barehanded man rising up against the machines. In Man of Steel, this theme is even more heavily emphasized in terms of natural birth versus artificially engineered. Superman versus the World Engine is basically in its most elemental form, Superman versus the Robot, a War of the Worlds, asking, how do you remake a world? With a violent, soulless machine indifferent to the death and destruction of the preceding beings, or in the hands of a humble human heart who respectfully takes every care to try and not upend the world, but nonetheless a challenge to it while intending to build a better one for them both. Make no mistake, they are both out to terraform the Earth. The World Engine 
fast and physically, but also Superman. Lara prays that he makes a better world. Jonathan tells him he's going to change it. It's not a fight to return to the status quo. It's two visions of progress. Superman is also going to terraform Earth in spirit, carefully, with concern and compassion as a bridge to the sun, turning it from one deeply cynical about alien others to one that embraces the wonder of its heroes. Think about it. Without Superman's arc in Batman v Superman, all the same existential fears would haunt the Justice League in a world without the superhero's sacrifice and hope. Batman already shows that in BVS, becoming more and more like what he set out to fight and good people living in fear. And he's just the tip of the iceberg. International incidents, collateral damage, or a tyrant Superman pose possible fears, but how does that compare to the existential dread of somebody who can travel through time and rewrite history? The Flash is in existential threat to the very notion of time, history, memory, or free will if we only fear his power. Afraid that Superman is unaccountable? How much more frightening is an entire alien alliance, an intergalactic police force, completely unanswerable to Earth, like the Green Lantern Corps? Does Superman being alien challenge what it means to be human? What about a barely biological being more machine than man, almost able to upload his consciousness? Cyborg is an existential threat to the nature of the soul, mind, and the meaning of personhood. How about an entire island of immortals? How do they threaten science, religion, and our understanding of life? If you leap directly into the League, they would be terrifying to mankind. It's only because Superman set the stage, changed the world, terraformed its attitude, and built a bridge that mankind can embrace these others as heroes, beings willing to die before they let harm come to humanity. Another core theme of War of the Worlds is man as animal. The story reflects the fragility of human society and how our structures, institutions, civilization, intellect, morality, and military might all crumble in the face of something higher up the food chain. How we can all turn animalistic when terrified, and that we are arrogantly oblivious to that fragility. It's a theme amplified today with the popularity of post-apocalyptic stories. We get a glimpse of this in the nightmare sequence from BVS. Our cities have crumbled. It's a violent and insecure world where we've turned school buses into war machines. A world caked in dirt and dust. There is no safety, no loyalty, and no rules. Civilization on the wane. Manners out the window. The reliance on fragile or failing societal structures is an obvious theme to the downfall of Krypton in Man of Steel. Even unto death, Krypton and Zod clung to their old ways, Zod wanting to rebuild them all over again. Yet Jor-El is so concerned about their potential effect upon Kal-El, he willingly chooses not to go and raise Kal-El in those ways, instead wanting him to be raised as human. Humans having the ability and the humility to recognize their own fragility. As we mentioned earlier, Dr. Hamilton and Perry are concerned about widespread panic precisely because they understand the issue. The same one that War of the Worlds underlines, that we're just a stone's throw away from devolving into animals. And with that recognition comes the opportunity to overcome it. Institutions, societies, and the swarming masses are still made up of individuals capable of doing the right thing. We as a species may all have that animal within, but we as individuals can choose to triumph over it. The selflessness, bravery, and sacrifice of Dr. Hamilton and Perry in the last act is humanity defying that issue. 
Dr. Hamilton doesn't crumble into a terrified beast, but brings his intellect to bear when the situation demanded it. Perry doesn't leave Jenny to die, but he tries to rescue her, encourages that impulse in others, still clings to hope, and tries to comfort her regardless. Man of Steel is optimistic and hopeful that our humanity still has value, still can triumph over terror, and that we're not just the animals depicted in War of the Worlds, that we can be shown the way, that we can be better. But to be better, you have to know that there's an issue, and that's very much what these stories try to highlight to the audience, to hold up a mirror and question, are we really that civilized? Are we really so accepting of others? Are we immune from hard choices and moral dilemmas? Are we so self-controlled that we couldn't be corrupted by a life of violence? It's pointless to present a paragon to aspire to. If you've already fooled yourself into believing that you're there, that's a false god, that's false hope. To have real hope, you have to have the humility to know that you need it. From several perspectives, the infamous 1938 War of the Worlds radio drama was an eye-opening, humbling event. From the creative perspective, Orson Welles, at a bare minimum, wanted to tap into our lizard brains and provide us with a proper Halloween scare. To feel that jolt of terror and adrenaline as our intellect takes a backseat to our animal instincts, as he would end the broadcast. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. As he said, that was Orson Welles. He was the voice of the shadow, oft claimed to be one of the inspirations behind Batman and some of Superman lore. But War of the Worlds catapulted him to international fame. He signed with RKO Pictures and released Citizen Kane in 1941, which gets an homage during the death of the Waynes in Batman v Superman. Before we get back to humility, let's just quickly run down some more similarities between Man of Steel and the radio broadcast. Both take a journalistic point of view. The radio drama is literally composed of news reports and Man of Steel with its handheld camera. Both were action-packed, both featured death and destruction, and both were controversial extensions or adaptations of their source material or mediums. War of the Worlds was controversial for imitating news radio at a time when the radio was implicitly trusted, and Man of Steel was controversial for its perceived differences from previous portrayals or the expected approach to a superhero comic book movie. Both would be called disaster porn by some and spectacles by others, with extremely hyperbolic reactions on either end of the spectrum, many applauding the novel format, questions and immersions, ready to call their directors godlike, while others were incensed, outraged, and claimed that the medium was defiled, blasphemous, and that the production was a cruel misunderstanding of the audience. Both used realism to draw the audience in, and both have significant horror sensibilities. They both used static and distortion and silence and jump scares to create unease. The Martians are completely inhuman, and Zod elects to be decidedly inhuman during his broadcast. You see his bug-eyed, skull-like helmet, again exploiting our primordial animal fear response. From an in-world perspective, both deal with the idea of public panic and present humanity as powerless against the aliens. Of course, the radio drama is more famous for the external-to-the-story public perspective. The idea 
idea that the program created a real-world nationwide panic from listeners believing that the broadcast was real, earning it the nickname The Panic Broadcast. If you don't know that story, I can't do it justice here, but the gist of it is that all across the country, channel surfers switched stations at the commercial break to catch War of the Worlds already in progress, and having missed the introductory disclaimers, fell victim to believing it was true. Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Never before had a radio broadcast provoked such outrage or such chaos. Upwards of a million people convinced, if only briefly, that the United States was being laid waste by alien invaders, and a nation left to wonder how they possibly could have been so gullible. Please tell us, were you at all surprised by the reaction to the radio broadcast? I think the reaction was the most damning indictment of the stupidity of the masses. Now, I appreciate what CBS and radio have done for the world, but why not respect that appreciation and not destroy all faith and confidence we have in the greatest means of getting information about the world, radio? Brilliantly directed by Wells, the War of the Worlds would become, in the end, the most famous radio program in history known forever after as the Panic Broadcast. For that version of the story, I defer to the PBS American Experience documentary and to Radiolab. I'll put links in the show notes. It's a compelling story. It's the one that I grew up with. However, another interesting perspective is in challenging the accuracy of that story. Relatively recent scholarship has re-examined the allegations with new skepticism about what actually happened. The following WNYC New York Public Radio segment shed some light. We are speaking of gullibility on an epic scale. But according to University of Maine journalism professor Michael Sokolow, the gulls weren't the radio listeners of 1938. They are us. Sokolow and co-author Jefferson Pooley wrote in Slate, there was no widespread freakout over the Mercury Theater on the Air broadcast. Who all heard the War of the Worlds episode when it was actually broadcast? We don't really know. We don't have accurate numbers, but there were two surveys done. One was done the night during the show, and it found that 98% of the listening audience was listening to something else or didn't have their radio on. And then there was a CBS survey done the next morning that also showed that barely anybody heard it and that those who did hear it, knew it was a drama. But there was a particular piece of scholarship that helped advance and perpetuate the myth. Tell me about Hadley Cantrill. This book called The Invasion from Mars is very slim on the actual data, and it's filled with these sensationalistic, lurid accounts of people telling him these narratives of fright. Cantrill himself is clear about the limitations of his study, okay? So he does say there were over 12,000 newspaper articles that they had in this research project, and they tried to track down names from the research article, and they found less than six people. The problem is people bought his book like crazy because it validates the panic. Banner headlines about this mass panic. Where did those reports come from, and how did they wind up getting that much play? The reports came from newsrooms, but the second place they came from is the context of something called the press radio war in the 1930s. During that decade, newspapers were dying off. They were losing a lot of advertising revenue. The newspaper owners and the newspaper industry did not like the radio industry, which was growing and gaining a lot of business at their expense. For years, these two industries had been fighting. You had economic and business power all shifting towards radio. When this opportunity occurred, newspapers had something to attack radio's credibility that they had never had before. In certain areas, the telephone exchanges did get 
get flooded. I'm not saying that didn't happen. And people did call the police. I'm not saying that didn't happen. But, you know, the question you have to ask is, is that reaction rational or irrational? Is that panic? What do you do when you hear something you're not sure about? You check up on it. We can't assume that everybody was scared out of their wits. Let's say it was sensationalized. How did it survive the aftermath of that news cycle? The story actually makes us feel good. We feel superior to that audience. We're smart enough. We're critical enough. We never would have fallen for this. It makes us feel good in the same way when, for instance, the Chinese media picks up a humorous story from The Onion and plays it straight. I mean, this has been studied by media scholars for a long time that we all believe that other people are a lot more persuadable in the media than we are. This story came up in our our story meeting, and I was shocked because I myself have accepted the notion of mass panic. And I have heard, seen, or read probably hundreds of stories about it, which means at least hundreds of times in the last 75 years, journalists have missed the opportunity to bring to bear any journalistic skepticism and due diligence, which bespeaks mass professional failure. Should I not be in despair over this? No. CBS has never released their data on it. Why? Because this is about the power of the media. The media industry is premised on the idea that we can persuade people to behave in certain ways. This story is the greatest illustration of that. You believe that there is a kind of institutional conspiracy on the part of all broadcast media? No. I would say it in the following way, that the broadcast industry makes certain assumptions about the powers they have over the mass audience that align perfectly with this story. I don't think it's conscious of them to cover up the idea of what happened. I think they believe it happened. Now, on PBS and from WNYC's own radio lab, you heard stuff about the War of the Worlds so-called panic that you know not to be true. It persists for a very simple reason. Both Radiolab and PBS chose to use a piece of scholarship from 1940 to base their program upon. If you were to make a documentary today, don't you think you'd use newer scholarship than from 1940? Interesting stuff, especially in terms of commenting on media power and manipulation, which BVS touches on. We have to discuss it one day, but just one more segment from NPR through the lens of an Orson Welles historian. Orson Welles. Director, actor, writer. His Citizen Kane is widely regarded as the greatest film ever made. And his 1938 Halloween Eve radio broadcast of The War of the Worlds was a great early lesson in the power of viral media. Brad Schwartz is with us now. His book is Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds and the Art of Fake News. You uncovered a trove of long-forgotten letters that gives us a much more realistic look at the actual response of the nation to that famous famous War of the Worlds broadcast of 1938. Give us an idea what's in the letters. Who wrote them? All kinds of people from all over the United States and a few from outside the country. That show is famous for supposedly causing this nationwide mass panic. That's certainly what the newspapers the next day, they they reserve those huge headlines like war breaks out, those kind of headlines. Yes, that made Orson Welles into an international celebrity and you don't have Citizen Kane without that. But when you look at what people actually wrote, because the show made headlines the next day, as you said, because it became this national event, a lot of people felt the need to write in describing their experiences. And there are, you know, a few hundred letters from people who were frightened and talk about how terrified they were and running to put the kids in the car and get out of town and all that. So that did happen in some rare instances. But in the larger sense, you know, most people who heard the show were not frightened and wrote to Wells and also to the FCC to talk about that. And they revealed 
these much larger fears they had about what this said about the power of media and these concerns that I think are still very much with us today in the age of the internet, this notion that uh, what are the dangers and the risks that that can pose to democracy, essentially. And that's something that they dealt with then, something that we're still dealing with today. If not more so. Very much so. It is interesting when you think that we're kind of used to fake news, (laughs) you know, John Stewart or The Onion, but people fall for it, click on it, tweet it, do whatever, spread it, and then realize, oops, that wasn't real. So even though we're sophisticated, we're falling for things in much the same way people in 1938 did. People tend to think of the War of the Worlds broadcast as kind of, you know, the rubes in 1938 falling for it. But I I don't think we are any more sophisticated now than the people who did fall for it back then. You know, there are letters in the U of M collection from doctors and lawyers and people saying, I have a college degree and you still frighten me, where it wasn't so much the broadcast, it was the way people shared it, the way they ran next door, the way they called their relatives and said, you got to tune in. That was really the driver of fear, the way people picked it up and spread it. And the larger story... Mm-hmm. Uh, the the headlines and kind of the narrative of the nationwide mass panic, that was fake news of a much larger and more serious kind. Put out by legitimate news exactly organizations. Right. <laughs> and that's something that's very much still with us today. You know, the, our 21st century press tend to exaggerate stories and misreport them in the way that the news media did and kind of create these hysterias that maybe we shouldn't experience. You know, you shouldn't believe the alarming tweet, but maybe breaking news isn't always breaking news and you need to be aware of that. I came to this as a fan of old-time radio, but not really a fan of Orson Welles. I became a fan of Orson Welles the more I researched him and realized how ahead of his time he consistently was. I mean, he was doing things, whether it was in theater, radio, or film, that uh, people weren't doing for decades after the fact. And it's difficult to understand how revolutionary he was because so much of what he did, we accept now. I mean, what he was doing in Citizen Kane, not just, you know, in the photography that everybody talks about and the deep focus and all that, but in the narrative, the idea of telling a story through multiple points of view that's all chopped up chronologically. That's something that that we kind of take for granted now, but people, at least general audiences, didn't really know what to make of it in 1941. And it was kind of, I think, was it in a sad ending to a stellar career? It it was. I mean, he I don't think he burned out. I think he was to the end of his life as creative as he ever was. I mean, he was always this fountain of ideas and writing things down, you know, script and he loved working on creative projects. The problem he had after Citizen Kane was he never had the resources or the the control that he had in his first quarter century. The reason Citizen Kane is so perfect and so polished is because he had final cut privilege and he had the resources of a major studio to do what he wanted to do. And he never had that again. Which um, surprises me. You would think, okay, he proved himself. He gets final cut. He gets those but it resources. Didn't, it didn't make money. That's the uh, thing. You know, did. partially. Partially because audiences, general audiences, didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, it was revolutionary. And, you know, how do you promote that? It's a drama. It's experimental. It's, it's not, not a gone with the wind. Precisely right. <laughs> so that was a financial failure, as most of his films were. But in Hollywood, they prize creativity, but they prize box office even more. And he said later in life, I've spent 98% of my life hustling for money and 2% actually making movies. And that's, I think, the tragedy of his life. Okay. A lot of interesting ideas packed in there. The rise of Orson Welles, media fears, fake news, virality, being ahead of one's time, and creative control. For your information, the most recent clip is from 2015. Nonetheless, fake news is obviously a prescient theme. It was recently reported that social media engagement of fake news generated in Macedonia for profit was markedly higher than that of actual news. The tension between creative control, critical acclaim, and the box office is still just as relevant today. 
As someone recently quipped, I think history is going to regard Batman v Superman as the world's most expensive indie film. (laughs) But back to the idea of humbling humanity, either in the story as animals prone to panic, or outside the story fooled by the story and panicking, or in the story of the story where the news fooled the audience to outrage. Well, there's one last twist. Again, I can't do it justice, but while the panic in 1938 was exaggerated, reportedly War of the Worlds was adapted again and again over the years and caused public panics in Santiago, Chile in 1944, in Quito, Ecuador in 1949, and in Buffalo, New York as recently as 1968. The stories are fascinating and tragic. In one instance, the radio station was burned down and seven people died. Again, I'll put links in the show notes, but be sure to check that Radio Lab episode out. So, are we just hopeless rubes? Well, remember, the whole point of this humility is recognition and acknowledgement so we can be better. Sometime after the panic broadcast, Orson Welles would admit that part of him wished to subvert how readily we accept news radio without filter or skepticism. Accepting human fallibility and uncertainty makes you slower to judge, open to showing grace, and glad to give second chances. Otherwise, we're prone to myopia, taking things for granted, and too quick to curse our headwinds while forgetting when the wind was blessedly at our backs. We're absolutely prone to normalizing the extraordinary almost instantly. I was on an airplane and there was high-speed internet on the airplane. That's yes. the newest thing that I know exists. And it's fast and I'm watching YouTube clips. It's am- I'm in an airplane. And then it breaks down. And they apologize. The internet's not working. The guy next to me goes, this is bullshit. Like, how quickly the world owes him something he knew existed only 10 seconds ago. Right. (laughs) And I just love how BVS reflects how quickly mankind is ready to take Superman for granted like that. They forget about the bigger picture. The fact that they're not alone in the universe. And that Superman is basically the only proven protocol against an alien invasion. And instead, immediately assuming his good deeds are a given. So much of the angst against Superman by Lex or Senator Finch only makes sense if Earth is in a bubble, one probably popped by Justice League. They're so worried about Superman's challenge to their powers and priorities in the short term, and on such a small scale, sometimes fans are just as myopic, obsessed over the smallest slights, the tiniest detail, or alleged error. DC's properties have lasted nearly 80 years. They're not doomed because of any one person, actor, or take, much less a missing line, explanation, or continuity error. Big picture. As long as they keep at it, there's always opportunity. Too often, we're quick to deem something good or bad without giving time its due. In our Storytime episode, we shared the parable of the lost horse, where each new circumstance seemed obviously good or bad initially, but always seemed to reverse fortune with a little bit of time, a bigger picture, or a larger context. For example, his son's broken leg could be quickly cursed as a bad thing, but then just as suddenly counted a blessing when it saves him from being conscripted into war. We shouldn't be so confident in our first impressions or be so ready to rush to judgment. This is not just some arbitrary lesson, but something that shows up again and again in these films. <laughs> Man, I have so many notes, I'm not going to list them all. So many characters who aren't what they seem upon first contact or first impression. There is more to their story or their stories change. Kahina isn't a victim of Superman, but becomes a victim of Lex. Wallace Keefe is first friendly, then fanatical. Lex is far from a fun-loving philanthropist 
philanthropist by the time he's behind bars. And obviously our title characters view each other radically different from the first time or times they met. Superman laying down an ultimatum is not the best first impression. <laughs> Too many to talk about, but let's talk about first impressions with Lois and with Pete. Lois has a fun little reversal between Man of Steel and BVS with respect to rejected handshakes. In both cases, it's a little bit of disrespect and dismissal. Colonel Hardy won't shake hands with Lois in Man of Steel. She's a pest to him and he's a roadblock to her. And in BVS, Lois won't shake Jimmy's hand. He's a pest to her and not worth her time. But when we go beyond that first contact, that first impression, that snap judgment, both men turn out to be something else, to be something more, and both willingly put their lives on the line for Lois. For Pete, he actually has an interesting arc, a bully to rescuee to quiet witness to helping hand. In BVS, he's the man who a mourning mother turns to for a ride back to the house. And he says something that's easy to overlook. Martha is worried about paying the funeral director, and Pete says they say it's all taken care of. Obviously, this implies Bruce Wayne's intervention, and it's easy to make Make this his moment. But think about that statement for a second. It's not like the funeral director is going to spontaneously offer that private information to anyone at random. No, the reason Pete knows that it's all taken care of is because he was inquiring into the costs himself. A guy who was working at IHOP, who might not have seen Clark much in years, is the one taking care of his grieving mother, looking into the finances, and probably prepared to help out. Imagine writing off a friend or a person like that just because of your first impressions for those first few seconds. We tend to take that first impression and force it to fit into what we already know and just go with it regardless of reality. Often people do this with words they're not familiar with, but which sound like other words. And here are just a few of my favorites. Bemused sounds like amused, but it means puzzled or confused. Nonplussed sounds like not caring too much, but it also means confused or very surprised. Restive doesn't mean calm, but hard to control and un unable to keep still or silent. A vomitorium is not a place to purge, but an exit to an amphitheater or stadium. And finally, apologist sounds like apology, as if to say one is sorry for wrongdoing and regretfully acknowledging an offense or failure. However, it refers to a technical form of discussion characterized by reasoned argument or justification and typically providing a theory or doctrine. An apologist is someone offering an argument or defense to a question or a controversy. It doesn't mean the person is sorry. And while the word itself is neutral, it can also take on the connotation of a blind defense. But given that the root word is the description of a specific type of reasoned argument, that usage is yet another misnomer. For example, any answer addressing the Fermi paradox is usually an apologetic explanation. They are not statements of remorse, regret, or wrongdoing, nor blind defense, but addressing the argument, its assumptions, and proposing alternatives. The fact that people have to be taught the definition of words, to learn alternative interpretations, or actually have some external input to understand the thing is just a fact of life. Saying that a piece that benefits from additional analysis, explanation, or appreciation is a failure for doing so is foolish. It's taking for granted your own ability to fully appreciate or understand or absorb or digest a work. Consider what's being taken for granted or assumed in the following anecdote. When the first Spaniards were sort of exploring 
the coast, what we call the Yucatan now. The Indians came out on their canoes and the captain said, what's the name of this land? And the Indian looked at him and said, Yucatan. And they said, okay, great. It's called, it's Yucatan. We now declare this Spanish territory, blah, blah, blah. Then in the 70s, an American uh, graduate student studying linguistics was doing her uh, doctoral research on Mayan dialect. And she figured out that Yucatan meant, I don't understand you. The point is, we think we understand things, but when you actually dig into the original source material, you find out you actually don't understand it. (laughs) Of course, you may have heard the kangaroo version of that story in Arrival, which should rightfully raise some questions about its authenticity. However, the point still stands. Our propensity towards misunderstanding is amplified by our attitudes as much as any actual barriers like language. The explorer was oblivious to his own assumption that his question would be understood and answered, and that's why it's especially important to slow down and take stock during first impressions, or to be graceful and give second chances. So many things are worth a second look, beyond the surface, beyond first impressions. Just as we traced back first contact stories to War of the Worlds, you can trace back the comic book superhero to Superman, and give Given the explosive success of Action Comics number one, it's easy to assume a favorable first impression. But what you might not know is that Siegel and Schuster shopped Superman around for some six years before finding a buyer. Superman was rejected by Humor Publishing in Chicago. The newspaper syndicates rejected a second version Siegel tried to solicit with artist Russell Keaton. Reuniting with Schuster, Superman was rejected by the New York newspaper syndicates. And only after years of rejection, did they manage to sell the character to Detective Comics, and they were only too eager to do so. The reason that we have these blockbuster films, superheroes, and the comic book industry, and Superman, is because Siegel and Schuster refused to accept their first impression as final and for all time. They kept trying until they found a publisher who wasn't so quick to dismiss, and the fandom owes so much to that attitude. Think back to the first comic you ever read, and I'll wager that for most, it wasn't the best thing you had ever read. But you didn't assume that it would all be downhill from there. You tried more and have read better books since. We have a lot of sayings based on the inability to properly evaluate things immediately. Don't judge a book by its cover. All that glitters is not gold. Beauty is only skin deep. It's also said you shouldn't judge a person by their appearance just as you wouldn't measure the ocean with a bucket. A retort to that might be, true, you can't measure the ocean with a bucket, but you can taste it with a cup. And there is a matter of metrics. You can't deny somebody their taste, but you can question their capacity. That said, taste is also affected by capacity. If you have an open mind, an adventurous palate, willing to be challenged, willing to leave your comfort zone and surrender your expectations, you can enjoy and appreciate a greater variety, nuance, and depth of flavors than somebody who insists on a single particular dish and delivery. Doesn't mean that you will, but you can as your capacity increases. Sometimes it takes growing up to appreciate those notes or flavors. Kids almost universally despise bitter flavors, but many grown-ups have to have their coffee with kick. Appreciation isn't always automatic, instinctual, innate, or unlearned. I sincerely doubt that everything in your life was love at first sight. Many times, it takes a second look, 
a second chance to go beyond the surface and first impressions. Many times, it's simply acknowledging the likelihood of unseen and unappreciated depth as possible to give things the benefit of the doubt. In Man of Steel, so much of the love and care in its production is completely unseen. So when you're inside, you see photo albums, you see the remnants of history. I mean, th this is not in the movie, but this is caring right here. It's a little note remembering Jonathan Kent to Martha from her friend Anne. That's the kind of caring. You know, something I feel always is very important for the actors is that almost that, that apocryphal idea that inside the drawer is the envelopes that are addressed to the character's name, even though the camera never sees it, to build those kind of layers so that the actors feel at one with the character and the character of the house itself becomes part of the storytelling, part of the world. Can you imagine if your significant other based their whole understanding of you on first contact alone? I think it's so fitting in Man of Steel that Lois and Clark's first contact is almost completely unremarkable. He helps her off the helicopter, she thanks him, and asks him to be careful with her bags. Would that interaction lead you to suspect they'd become a great love story, willing to die for one another, with Lois mourning his death while wearing his ring? It's a reflection of real-life relationships. How many of your closest confidants came from completely casual, inconsequential first contact, barely sharing anything in common at first, only to learn how much you resonate over time? That idea is embedded deeply in the Superman mythos and the dual identity. The obvious and the traditional one is that Clark Kent is more than meets the eye. He has capabilities beyond what everyone sees, that with a shirt rip, he exposes hidden powers, virtue, and value, a sensation that we can all sympathize with, that no one really knows our true abilities and worth without getting to know us. However, I'm also a fan of the more modern metaphor of divided dehumanization, the issue where the instant that we have enough of an impression to apply a label, slap on a stereotype, sort into a silo, or place into a box, we stop considering each other as individual humans. As long as we can put up a wall and other someone to make someone stand in for an entity or an entire other idea, we suddenly feel entitled to reduce, summarize, and ignore individual nuance. It could be somebody's occupation, class, wealth, race, religion, political affiliation, immigration status, or almost anything. It's so easy to take an individual and suddenly turn them into a symbol based on an impression. Many Bible stories challenge the initial assumptions associated with the exile, the foreigner, the last mourn, the persecutor, or the prostitute. People are more than those labels. And boy, do people like to sum up Superman with a lot of labels, both in story and out. Batman v Superman shows how Superman, the station, the icon, the position, stands for so much, potentially at the expense of the person. Others make him out to be an alien, a god, or a devil in story. Some expect a level of perfection or optimism that we would never impose upon another individual, but are only too quick to demand from the cape and costume. However, what the film shows is that the person underneath all that is incredibly human, capable of frustration, heartbreak, discouragement, and error, but also love, courage, passion, depth, and so on. Clark Kent is more able than we see, but also that Superman is more human than we know, culminating in his ability to die as one expression of his humanity. And I thought for his evolution as a character, Superman's character, there's a crucible that he has to, to go through to really embrace his humanity or find like, what is it? Like, what is the ultimate thing about being human? The ultimate thing you face is your mortality. And that's a thing that I think is really cool about this 
In order to get that subtext or value out of the story, you have to be willing. It takes an open mind and an attitude that things can be more than just their surface. It requires faith that there's more to uncover and trust that it's worth it. Sometimes you have to take a leap of faith first. The trust part comes later. If you go back to my first BVS reaction episode, you'll know that I expressed doubts and was skeptical that it would be worth it. But since then, more and more, as I'm open to looking and listening, I'm coming to appreciate little touches, lessons, and layers developed throughout the film that really makes it a special one-of-a-kind thing. It took time to get there, just as it took time to discover one of the most interesting interpretations of the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We're going to wrap this episode with the wizard, but before we get to the story of that interpretation, like we've been doing all along, let's look at some of the overlap between the two. More for fun than anything else. Sometimes it's satisfying just simply to stretch. So, as quintessential American mythologies, the association goes back well before BVS. Superman was first published in 1938, and the MGM movie premiered in 1939. Warner Brothers owns the rights to both. Back from when Turner bought the MGM library. Dorothy and Superman are both orphans who hail from Kansas farmstead and whose stories really start when they're not in Kansas anymore. Both fall from the sky and are said to come from another star. Both wear blue with red footwear, love their dogs, and are strangers in a strange land, or maybe better said, strange visitors from another planet, who reflect two sides of the immigration experience. Arriving to a land which promised streets paved with gold, but disillusioned and longing for home. But just the same, all I kept saying to everybody was, I want to go home while also granted power, opportunity, responsibility, and honor one wouldn't have at home. Homesickness simultaneous with the American dream. Both the MGM film and Action Comics number one owe some of their early awe factor to the application of color technology at the time. Turning to the recent films, there's Tornadoes and Cyclones, Martha and Auntie M, Parademons and Flying Monkeys. If Superman is the central character, then he's joined by three allies. The first in his journey is also the most vulnerable of the three, Lois. She mirrors the Scarecrow, who is most often in peril like Lois. His job means that he's stuck on his stick, he gets taken apart by flying monkeys, and is slightly singed, a little like how Lois is a little drowned, is taken away by Lex's minions, and her job gets her stuck in the story about a terrorist general. The Scarecrow is the one that Dorothy says she'll miss most of all, just as Superman would say of Lois. You most of all. The second ally is the man in the metal suit, who has become extremely inflexible. Exposed to the environment of Gotham, he's become heartless and like his environment, with disrepair and weed-like criminals. Batman. The Tin Man is a metal man who rusts to a standstill in the forest, becoming like one of its fixtures or trees. It takes Dorothy to animate him and bring him back to his better self, and the same could be said of Superman for Batman. The third ally is royalty known for ferocity and who has instead optioned to stay away from the fight. Wonder Woman. This is like the king of the jungle being juxtaposed against a cowardly demeanor and a pretty red ribbon. In Oz, only Dorothy and the lion succumb to sleep in the poppy fields. Similarly, only Superman and Wonder Woman withdraw from humanity, whereas Batman and Lois remain ever active during the story. But once they're brought back to action, it's the Tin Man who's been temporarily frozen into ineffective inaction again. Similar to how once Superman and Wonder Woman enter the fray against Doomsday, 
Batman had to sit back some. In the end, the heroes are rewarded with token gestures in a grand farewell ceremony, just as an empty coffin is paraded and honored as a fallen soldier. Then there are the Freudian interpretations. Those ruby red slippers? Well, obviously they symbolize anxiety over Dorothy's budding sexuality. In a Freudian analysis of Dorothy's childish fever dream, some associate Miss Gulch and the Wicked Witch of the West as representing Dorothy's fear of adulthood, the fear of what she might become. By the same token, Zod and then Doomsday represent the dark mirrors of what Superman as a concept could become, the alien invader and the inhuman monster. If you look at villains in comic books, there are really two types of really big archetypal villains. There is what's called the opposite and what's called the dark mirror. General Zod is the dark mirror of Superman. He's a Kryptonian who just believes in the survival of Krypton and Earth. If it has to be sacrificed for that, so be it. Both feature men behind the curtain. And we mentioned homesickness earlier. So both stories have the idea of home, belonging, and one's world as a common element. What she says has always struck me. What a world. What a world. And that's very Baumian because it just talks about the strangeness of existence. I love you. No. No, Clark, you can't. This is my world. No, Clark, don't. You are my world. No, Unsurprisingly, both follow the cycle of the hero's journey, but are especially circular stories tending to end up where they started in a sense. After all Dorothy's adventures, she winds up back at the farm because there's no place like home. And after all of Superman's efforts, we wind up back in a world without a Superman. Many have noticed the circular visuals, lines, themes, and motifs in BVS and even across films. Out there, amongst the stars, you will live. But in the dark... Among the stars, <laughs> ding dong, the god is dead. They are both ultimate detours, both ultimate not taking where you are and what you have within for granted stories. Dorothy had everything she needed and wanted all along, just as Superman basically learns. Of course, the Wizard of Oz is nearly a nonsense story from a plot perspective, and the acting is over the top and the dialogue is unnatural, yet it has endured as a cultural touchstone for generations. While story is the primary thing that matters from a contemporary commercial perspective, Oz shows that we've always appreciated art along alternative avenues, not solely on story exalted alone. It's not the only thing, it never was. Part of the enduring success of Oz is its openness to interpretation. So just what is it about Oz that generates so many theories, interpretations, and readings? I put that question to the novelist Alison Lurie, who has written extensively about children's literature and about Oz. This was an American fairy tale. Instead of taking over European figures of the fairy and the ogre, he invented new supernatural characters. And nobody could say for certain what these new supernatural American characters or landscapes in Oz stood for if anything. And even now, nobody really knows. 
I think that's the beauty of something that retains a sense of mystery and one of the great gifts to an audience, which is not spelling everything out, allowing the audience to do the rest of the work, to take these elements home with them and decide for themselves what they've actually got from it and allows subjectivity to reign. Because you can't ever create something concrete that has so such a so many imaginative possibilities. You're making it finite when you turn it into something concrete, it seems to me. BVS isn't quite as open-ended, but it definitely requires and accepts more interpretation than the typical genre film. But if this is all too speculative, there are, of course, the overt references to The Wizard of Oz. Lying at the bottom of the Indian Ocean, Emerald City. Beautiful. Where does he go? Where does he go, Jenny? I don't, I don't know. Clicks his heels three times, goes back to Kansas, I suppose. Ding dong. The god is dead. Does it mean anything? I think it allows you to read similar themes into both and to acknowledge that these are both American mythology. But at a minimum, it means that there is explicit awareness and acknowledgement of Oz. This isn't a dark side of the rainbow circumstance. It does not mean, however, that every alleged connection found was ever intended. It does, however, invite the audience to look. And the longer that they've looked, the more and more both works seem to offer over time. For the wonderful Wizard of Oz, a populist political allegory would come to become one of the pillars of interpretation for the novel published over 60 years earlier. Populism heavily influenced early Superman and could have been used as a lens to interpret Oz. In the summer of 1963, a high school teacher changed the way the world looked at the Wizard of Oz. His name was Henry Littlefield, and he was teaching an American history class. He'd made it to the late 19th century, a time called the Gilded Age, but he was struggling to keep his class interested in the complex social and economic issues of the time. In the 1890s, farmers wanted to add silver to the gold standard to put more money in circulation and make it easier for farmers to borrow. In the book, Dorothy walked to the Emerald City on the yellow brick road in her silver shoes. The movie's ruby red slippers started out as silver. Silver and gold on the road to prosperity. L. Frank Baum had published the book in 1900 at the height of the Gilded Age, and the analogy didn't seem out of the question. No one else had seen these connections, but that didn't deter Littlefield. He taught his class about the Gilded Age using the book, and soon he and his students were finding more connections. For instance, in the late 1890s, the U.S. had recently recovered from the Civil War and integrated vast new territories, bringing an era of prosperity for some. But while industry and finance in the North and East prospered, farmers across the South and Midwest struggled. This led to the populist movement uniting farmers and workers against urban elites. By 1896, the movement had grown into the People's Party, and its support of Democrat William Jennings Bryan put him in reach of the presidency. Meanwhile, in Oz, claimed Littlefield, Dorothy is a typical American girl whose hard life in Kansas is literally turned upside down by powerful forces outside her control. The munchkins are the common people oppressed by the witch of the East, banks and monopolies. The scarecrow is the farmer, considered naive, but actually quite resourceful. The tin woodman is the industrial worker, dehumanized by factory labor. And the cowardly lion is William Jennings Bryan, who could be an influential figure if only he were brave enough to adopt the populists' radical program. Together, they travel along a golden yellow road 
towards a grand city whose ruler's power turns out to be built on illusions. Littlefield published some of these observations in an essay. His claim that this fantasy was actually a subversive critique of American capitalism appealed to many people in the 1960s. Other scholars took up the theme, and the proposed analogies and connections multiplied. They suggested that Dorothy's dog Toto represented the teetotalers of the Prohibition Party. Oz was clearly the abbreviation for ounces, an important unit in the silver debate. The list goes on. By the 1980s, this understanding of the book was accepted so widely that several American history textbooks mentioned it in discussions of late 19th century politics. But is the theory right? L. Frank Baum's introduction claims the book is just an innocent children's story. Could he have been deliberately throwing people off the trail? And is it fair to second-guess him so many decades later? There's no definitive answer, which is part of why authorial intent is a complex, tangled, fun question to unravel. In the end, all we know for sure is that Baum, inspired by European folk legends, had set out to create one for American children. And whether or not he intended any hidden meanings, its continuing relevance suggests he succeeded in creating a fairy tale America can call its own. As mentioned in the clip, it's uncertain to unlikely that these interpretations are intended or even endorsed by the author, but they can still be interesting and valuable. I'm going to defer on the issue of authorial intent like the clip does. After all, Baum would go on to write 13 more books set in Oz, and I imagine that any allegory would break down rapidly with that many sequels, but who knows? C.S. Lewis was fairly steadfast through the Chronicles of Narnia. Still, I defer. I'm not claiming it's intentional, but there's still real value in being able to draw connections like these. For Littlefield, it was an educational tool and a launchpad for academic scholarship. Nobody really knew if L. Frank Baum ever intended The Wizard of Oz to be an allegory for popular and there were a lot of reasons to think that he didn't. But in spite of its debatable merits as a literary theory, over the next 20 years, scholars jumped on Littlefield's bandwagon. Littlefield's theory became the standard academic line on Oz. College professors passed it on to their students who told their friends about it. So that even today, when the book or the movie comes up in conversation, there's almost always a wise guy there to let you in on the skinny. You know, it's really about silver. Don't you? Imagine if the connections that you uncover become the predominant narrative for discussion ever after. So much better if it doesn't take you 60 years to see that there's more than just the surface story. Being open to finding such connections also improves your understanding and empathy for others. This is related to something called theory of mind. The fact that you can recognize that you and I are two different people with our own motivations and goals. There are two main parts to this idea. There's cognitive theory of mind, which is understanding someone else's intentions and knowledge, and effective theory of mind, which is understanding someone's emotional state, basically empathy. In a 2013 study with a couple hundred participants, scientists found that subjects who read literary fiction with complex characters, as opposed to pop fiction with predictable characters, nonfiction or nothing, scored higher in measures of effective theory of mind. Note the value on a more literary approach versus the more predictable ones, the latter falling prey to what we've already discussed, that bad habit of labeling others and putting them into boxes. Of course, the peril of pattern recognition is finding meaning in the meaningless, something that we're hardwired to do, and that can lead to self-deception, distrust, seeing conspiracies, paranoia, and fear-mongering. However, knowing your impulse and first instincts, you can choose to take advantage of them. So far, we've talked about mitigating your unconscious first impressions, but we can also harness those automatic responses for good sometimes. For example, our mind takes its cues from our body. Smiling will make you feel feel happier. Breathing deep and slow brings calm. 
putting your hands on your hips with your chest out in the Superman pose brings confidence. Links in the show notes. And thinking about superheroes can make us better people. One study used virtual reality to see whether or not stepping into the shoes of a superhero could actually make people act more like heroes in real life. 74 participants were sorted into two groups. The first group could lift their arms over their head and take off into the virtual sky like Superman, while the other group flew by virtual helicopter, which is cool, but less cool. And then they were given one of two tasks, either to explore the simulated city or to find a lost diabetic child who would appear nearby after three minutes. After the simulation was over and the headsets came off, the researcher conducting the experiment thanked the participants for their time and then accidentally on purpose knocked over a pot of 15 pens while pretending to sort some papers. Every single person who donned Superman's cape swooped in to save the day by picking up those pens no matter what tasks they had been given in the game. In fact, all of the superheroes picked up more pens on average than any of the people who experienced the helicopter ride, and six of the helicopter riders didn't even help at all. The authors suggest that our superheroes might have acted this way because heroism and helping were pushed to the front of their minds, and it shifted their sense of identity. Even though the experiment never even mentioned the word superhero, something about being able to fly made people remember that, yeah, they could be heroes sometimes. So why not save this experimenter one pen at a time? The fact that we can psychologically take on good characteristics from fictional situations is kind of amazing. It lets us find a sense of belonging in the stories we love, but it can also change how we interact with the world. Our fandom can be a healthy thing, so long as you're rooted in reality, seasoned with skepticism, and your actions and beliefs are largely pro-social. There's more good than harm in seeing and appreciating connections. Those connections are often baked into the very fabric of science fiction, as Arthur C. Clarke observes. So how do you see the actual role of science fiction? Is it purely escapism, or do you see it as having a, a, a very real purpose in broadening our patterns of thinking? opening our minds to the kind of vast concepts which we're discussing today. Well, first of all, there's no objection to escapism in the right places. In fact, C.S. Lewis once remarked to me, the only people who don't like, who object to escapism are jailers. And uh, <laughs> we all want to escape occasionally, but science fiction is often very far from escapism. In fact, you might say that science fiction is escape into reality. It's the fiction which does concern itself with real issues. In fact, I cannot think of any form of literature which is more concerned with real issues and reality. To close out this episode, the cast of Man of Steel connect the lessons of the film and Superman to reality. It's a very good and appropriate kind of parallel to look at Krypton as the kind of ultimate expression of the way that we see what's happening to Earth. So you're allowing the audience a way into Krypton in this kind of extreme expression of self-destruction. We look around us in our world as it is now, and regardless of how many people deny what is fundamentally obvious, there's something changing. We're not just talking about you know the gigantic concept of shifting weather patterns. You know, we're talking about the fundamental things like we've screwed up water sources. We've actually built buildings on the most fertile land in, in a lot of countries, you know. We've made some really stupid mistakes, but we can turn it around. And if this film puts that concept into the minds of young boys and young girls, the generation that's gonna come forward and make the decisions going forward, then that's a wonderful thing. And if that's what, you know, Superman means in this instance, fantastic. I saw in the newspaper the other day that uh, they found some 
planet very similar to Earth, just outside of our solar system, apparently. Kepler-22, and uh, immediately I just started thinking about how, you know, somebody's probably going to try and go out and claim that for us, you know, when we're done ruining this place. It was, it was very interesting to be sitting and reading that article while I was getting my hair done for Superman. It was a very interesting uh, juxtaposition. Thank you. For what? For believing in me. We all got into comic books because at one time or another, we wanted to escape, wanted to get into a different world. Well, Superman's all about freedom, right? He represents that truth, justice, the American way. But really, it's carving your own destiny. Take whatever you're good at and do the best you can with it. It's resonated for decades in the Superman comics. It's been there from the beginning. It's there in the, in the film. He has a good heart, and he tries to use it to make the world a better place. I can't think of a finer ambition. No matter what anybody says, I think there's a party that wants to be a superhero, that wants to do something greater and, and bigger than you are. But for me, growing up was like, you saw that Superman, you're like, wow, I want to be that. You know, I think if you live your life like you're in a movie, it will usually inform you of what to do, believe it or not. People always talk about movies as being make-believe. But the truth is, movies construct moments where you get to watch the screen and decide what kind of man you are. Some of the most special heroes we've had throughout history, ancient and modern, represent hope and the ability to conquer adversity against all odds. Superman was designed for that very reason. It's the one thing that matters most to us because no matter where we are in life, no matter what's going on in the world, hope always plays a significant part in our lives. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Some editing and notes. This episode was recorded after the latest Wonder Woman trailer, but before the March 25th Justice League trailer. I like what I've seen so far, and I can't wait for both movies. But I'm not planning to do a podcast on promo materials right now, but never say never. This episode was also recorded before the musical Flash episode duet, so I didn't have time to insert or refer to all of Kara's Oz references. And frankly, there is just so much edited out of this episode. The first version was incredibly science-heavy, had a segment on universal translation, and so much more. But I wanted a broader application, and I like the idea of giving things the benefit of the doubt. Two things that you might want to check out on your own. The first is an interview Zack Snyder did with Screen Junkies about Sucker Punch, where he hopes people debate the meaning of his movies. And the second is the Super Friends episode, The Planet of Oz, where Superman, Wonder Woman, and Aquaman are forced to follow the yellow brick road by a certain fifth dimensional imp. I had an intellectual property discussion surrounding Superman, Oz, and the public domain, but that was a total derail um, for Oz the 1900 book is in the public domain, but the 1939 movie copyright still belongs to Warner. There's a 2011 
landmark case on this. I'll put a link in the show notes. I also cut a segment meant to bridge the mass hysteria from the panic broadcast to the mass delusion related to the ending of The Wizard of Oz. To this day, I know some people who swear that after Dorothy declares her entire adventure a dream, the camera pans down to reveal her ruby slippers under the bed or still on her feet, shining red in a sepia world. <laughs> there is so much I wanted to say about how people insist certain things are in these movies that are not, but I cut that out. Oz, of course, has endless readings and interpretations, so I just had to leave a lot of interesting ones out. I considered putting the recorded segments at the end as extras, but every time I've done it in the past, I know why it was cut. I cringe when it's out there. So this time, you're just getting the summary. In terms of production, I would love to get a Wonder Woman episode out there before the movie premieres. Fingers crossed that I'll have the time. I'm also recording this before I figure out what, if anything, I'm putting at the end. So whatever it is, enjoy. You're the answer, son. You've grown stronger here than I ever could have imagined. The only way to know how strong is to keep testing your limits. Won't 